Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast and welcome to our new series, The Critic Narrated. Each week, we will be bringing you a selection of articles from our print issues, read aloud by their authors for you to listen to on your commute, around the house, or alongside reading the written piece. Don't forget, you can visit our website www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe to the print issue and to read a plethora of articles on politics, current affairs, society, culture, and beyond. And you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Spotify and iTunes to ensure you never miss a beat. In this episode, architectural historian Matthew Lloyd Roberts reads his article, The Critic's New Home. Anna Price, podcast producer here at The Critic, narrates Claudia Savage-Gore's Hot House column, and Christchurch alumnus, former Conservative cabinet member, and current prison chaplain Jonathan Aitken reads his feature on Christchurch College, entitled Low Panic at the High Table. All articles taken from The Critic's October issue. The Critic's New Home The frontage of The Critic's New Home, 11 Tufton Street, bears the name J. Whipple & Co. in spacious gold lettering. Whipples have been purveyors of ecclesiastical textiles since at least the 1830s, with a grocery and textile business bearing the name in Exeter, dating back to the 1780s. They are one of a handful of continuously trading firms to have presented their wares at the Great Exhibition of 1851. The Whipples commissioned Samuel Arthur Spear Yeo to build their first custom-built London premises on Tufton Street, which opened in 1929. Yeo's offices were at 2 Charterhouse Street in Holborn, and he spent most of his career working on unpretentious Neo-Georgian projects around London. Number 11 Tufton Street had previously been home to a firm of stonemasons, and before that it was purportedly a home for fallen women. Compared to the boisterous Neo-Georgianism of Lutyens's Faith House along the street, Years No. 11 owes more to the commercial architecture of the Regency townscape, with artfully subtle bow windows and discreetly arched, spiritedly rhythmic first-floor windows. To the left, there is a low-relief carving of a Roman woman holding a spindle with which she presumably weaves liturgical clothing, despite her pagan garb. On the right stands a proud mason bearing a Corinthian capital, an allusion to Whipple's hard-won reputation as a restorer of church fabric, stained glass and metalwork. A brass plaque on the frontage declares, established in the 18th century, and a handsome blue sign overhangs the street, naming the sadly defunct metalworkers Gawthorpe and Sons, who once shared the premises. My name is Matthew Lloyd Roberts, I'm an architectural historian, and I produce the podcast about buildings and cities. Pray, hate. Claudia Savage-Gore threatens to call the divorce lawyers. <sighs> it started in the summer, in Norfolk. Long story short, I set fire to the Airbnb and we then had to spend two nights with this nightmare influencer mother from Lyra's school, Talitha Loveday, who Will has always had a thing about. Talitha's basically a poor man's Gwyneth, Blonde, Californian, divorced, yoga instructor, having a permanent eat-pray-love moment. Anyway, when she's not in Maida Vale, she has this barn near Holt, where she runs sodding wellness retreats. 
so we were not only subjected to her positive vibes, but also her plant-based menus. Looking back, that was when I knew. It was the way Will was really going for her vegan kebabs, and not in a standard I'm trying to eat less meat way, but asking Talitha loads of questions about gut health and doing his listening face, which, FYI, looks constipated. He actually took a kimchi-making class. Why the fuck didn't we just go to Cowley Manor like I said we should? Even once I'd sorted a new Airbnb, he kept mentioning Talitha and finding random excuses to meet up with her and her terrible only child, Isadora. We even had to spend our last night at the barn with Will and Talitha namasteing each other all night while I was essentially unpaid childcare. Driving back to London, I commented on his newfound enthusiasm for yoga and he began mansplaining the power of kindness and the toxicity of my outlook. I mean, come on. I left it because the kids were in the car, but let's just say we were not in a good place by the time we got home. The clincher was the bloody Delta variant hitting us. Basically, we both got pinged when we got home, and I knew it was Talitha because her Instagram had gone mysteriously quiet. Will kept implicating the new cleaner just because she isn't vaxxed. I said there was no lower move than cleaner blame and that he should check his privilege. Lol. Anyway, cut to two days later, Will's complaining that he can't taste his meat-free bacon and, sure enough, the odd two lines popped up on the lateral flow. I let Talitha know, purely to find out if she was the source. And, quel surprise, she sent me back a guilt-ridden essay about how she'd been feeling too rough to let anyone know, but that, yes... She'd tested positive two days earlier. No wonder Will had it. They were doing fucking lion's breath at each other, Google it, for a whole morning on Clay Beach. Will then spent a week behaving like he was en route to ICU while I was downstairs with all three kids and no nanny. No nanny. When he finally emerged from the spare room, I checked his phone on the pretext of detailing it and found loads of messages between Will and Tali swapping symptoms, commiserative emojis, and worst of all, alternative remedies. Literally every one of her messages mentioned sodding CBD oil or ginger, all of which Will was lapping up while in reality mainlining codeine and Pepsi. Once the rest of us had tested positive, I had to cancel Hector's Tennis Academy, Lyra's Kumon Camp and Minnie's filmmaking course. We spent two weeks in our private lockdown hell, just as Will recovered and announced he'd be seeing Talitha for some Reiki. She then sends a bloody care package via Wheezy, full of aforementioned ginger and CBD. I threatened to call a divorce lawyer. Will says I have a brain fog. To be continued. Carry on Christchurch, the marooned Oxford movie featuring astronomical cost overruns, bizarre script changes, numerous false allegations, a dodgy dossier, and multiplying court cases is fast morphing into a much darker fiasco. How and when will it end? And at what cost? Four years after a handful of disaffected dons began their abortive plotting to oust Dean Martin Percy, the college's charitable foundation has so far spent at least £3 million of its funds 
on legal, public relations, and other dispute-related costs. It has also thrown away another estimated £3 million worth of lost donations because a number of wealthy past and present philanthropists, including Christchurch's greatest benefactor, Michael Moritz, are withholding any future gifts until the toxic Tom Quad antics have ended. No such end is in sight. The latest bulletin to alumni has coyly skated over the news that the Employment Tribunal, one of the half-dozen courts, tribunals or regulatory bodies currently engaged with investigating or judging aspects of the college's legal quicksands, will not even begin hearing its Christchurch co-celebre until 2023. During these shenanigans, the college's academic results have nosedived. Christchurch, which used to be one of the regular leaders of the all-important degree Norrington table, has this year come almost bottom in 34th place out of 37th. Far from any self-examination for the teaching and lecturing disappointments that must be partly responsible for this debacle, the self-congratulatory dons on the governing body have just proposed a handsome increase in their salaries and allowances. Only one member, a non-academic, dared to oppose this largesse and walked out of the meeting after strenuous opposition. The consequences of these recurring failures of judgment are that my alma mater, once so proud of its Oxonian preeminence, has suffered the worst reputational damage in terms of media reporting of any college in living memory. The hurt is likely to last for at least a generation. How did this combination of tragedy, comedy, incompetence and farce happen? Attempted head of house coup d'etat are not unknown at Oxford. One or two succeed. Most fade away. None have ever been as expensively and publicly mishandled as the continuously failed efforts to defenestrate Dean Martin Percy. Why was the coup attempted? The answer to this £6.4 million and rising question is at best opaque and at worst pathetically unconvincing. That latter view appears to have been taken by the retired High Court judge, Sir Andrew Smith, who was appointed by the college in 2017 to chair a tribunal to decide whether to dismiss the dean under the statutes, the head of the college, which is what the dean is at Christchurch, can only be fired for conduct that is, quote, immoral, scandalous, or disgraceful, unquote. Now, this might seem a high hurdle, but evidently not, 
to seven members of the governing body. Lindsay Judson, Edwin Simpson, Joseph Shear, Dirk Arts, Graham Ward, Belinda Jack, and James Laurie. This magnificent seven acted as the complainants for the prosecution, and in 2018, they formally laid charges against Martin Percy. All their charges were comprehensively dismissed. I reject them all, quote-unquote, declared Sir Andrew in his scathing judgment at the end of a 12-day trial. He drew attention to one minor accidental breach of fiduciary duty by the dean in respect of a £500 legal bill, but solely to dismiss its significance. This 27-0 defeat was a disaster for the prosecutors and their allies. If this were the Premier League, the manager and most of the players would have been given their P45s. But the coup leaders sailed complacently on and devised a most original alternative strategy. They launched a new legal battle to keep the full, unredacted Smith Tribunal judgment confidential, even from governing body members, who are the college's charitable trustees. These moves failed hilariously. Knowing something from my parliamentary days about the law of confidentiality, I took it upon myself as an interested alumnus to send a copy of the unredacted Smith Tribunal to all 65 members of the governing body. The then senior censor, Geraldine Johnson, taking her job title literally, sent round an email urging her flock to become self-censors. Quote, Please immediately delete this email from Mr. Aitken, including all attachments, and confirm this by return to the senior censor's email address, unquote. The Times reported this low panic at High Table under the headline, quote, Don't read it. Oxford College tries to silence defence of the dean, unquote. Once the censor's confidential horse had bolted amidst rising media ridicule, any sensible friend of the House might have expected the governing body to do what losers in just about every other failed litigation case have to do, accept defeat and pay the other side's costs. Not so the fighting dons of Christchurch. They redoubled their efforts to oust the dean. To put financial pressure on him, they refused to pay his £400,000 legal costs. One of Martin Percy's principal persecutors, Professor David Hine, a specialist in public ethics, explained to his colleagues that this refusal, quote, may not be moral, but it is legal, quote, unquote. Hine's view has been rubbished in an opinion by two eminent counsel, Edward Fitzgerald QC and Paul Harris SC and is to be challenged in court. Despite more squabbles and skirmishes, 
The dispute seemed to be petering out by the end of 2019 until it was revived by so-called quote-unquote sex scandals. The first of these surfaced in March 2020 when without prior notice to Martin Percy, Christchurch announced that several alleged safeguarding cases handled by him were causing concern and, been, and had been passed to the Church of England's National Safeguarding Team, or NST. In September 2020, the Church of England ruled that there was no substance to the allegations, and the Dean was fully exonerated. Then on the 4th of October 2020, there was an incident in the vestry of Christchurch Cathedral, now widely known as, quote-unquote, Hairgate. A complainant, Ms. X, complained that in a brief conversation, the dean had complimented her on her hair, which she told him she was about to donate to charity. It was also alleged that the dean had touched Ms. X's hair and said he had been unable to take his eyes off her during the service. The dean denied these allegations. As soon as I heard this story, I regarded it as too insubstantial to support serious charges. My scepticism was not shared by the Christchurch establishment, led by the magnificent seventh theologian, the Reverend Canon Professor Graham Ward. One member of the governing body solemnly told a national newspaper editor that the dean had been masturbating when in the vestry with Ms. X. But it was soon clear to most people, including the reporters who investigated this fiction, that the incident had never conceivably been a serious assault or a breach of safeguarding. Nevertheless, a risk assessment report was commissioned. The lurid allegations contained in the report was used as a basis for draconian restrictions on the suspended dean and for a Clergy of England Clergy Discipline Measure, or CDM, prosecution against him. But now, alas, there's a problem for the dean's attackers. The alleged authors of the risk assessment document have denied writing it, or indeed ever seeing it. A most suspicious mystery. Mais alors, Hercule Poirot is now said to be on his way to solve it. The CDM case collapsed when the High Court judge, Dame Sarah Asplin, the president of the Church of England's tribunals, ruled that it would be entirely disproportionate to take the matter to a tribunal. She added that there was no evidence of sexual intent in what was alleged by the complainant, who had originally said she was not much upset by the alleged vestry incident. So here endeth the Dean is a sex pest story, you might think. Not so. The Tweedledums and Tweedledees of the Fighting Dons are now using Ms. X's allegations to attempt to launch a second tribunal to seek the Dean's dismissal.
Have the college lawyers again advised the governing body, as they did with the first Smith Tribunal, that Christchurch has a 75% chance of winning the case? If so, fasten your seatbelts for a second tribunal extravaganza next year. At the heart of these melodramas are two areas of serious concern. The first is about the quality of the college lawyers, the costs and the delays in the tortuous legal proceedings. The second is about the quality of the present governance of the college. Both areas are now coming under the increasingly intense scrutiny of the regulators, principally the Charity Commission, but also the Solicitor's Regulation Authority and the Bar Council. On costs and delays, the fictional Jarndyce v. Jarndyce looks a bargain compared to the real-life Christchurch v. Percy. The college has employed an iolanthicized cast of three leading law firms and several learned counsel. Their combined efforts, aided and abetted by the ultra-expensive PR firm Luther Pendragon, have been stunningly unsuccessful, but also unrelentingly determined. Costly experience has not been a teacher here. It is an extraordinary fact of this saga that every time Christchurch presents its allegations against the dean for a hearing by an independent judge, a tribunal, a police force, or a regulatory body, the college loses. In numerical terms of charges or submissions or allegations won or lost, the results to date are Dean 41, Don's nil. This sounds ridiculous. Let's study the scorecard. At the Smith Tribunal, all 27 charges against the Dean were dismissed. In front of the recent pre-hearing of the Employment Tribunal, the College made numerous optimistic submissions, starting with the sweeping claim that the Dean's claim was not justiciable at all, and going on to assert that he was not entitled to any employment rights. The score after these opening rounds was 7-0 in the Dean's favour. On the purported sex scandals or safeguardings front, seven allegations against the Dean have so far been dismissed or rejected as having no case to answer by the Church of England's National Safeguarding Team, by Thames, Thames Valley Police, and by the High Court Judge Dame Sarah Asplin. Such a track record might cause most litigants, not least those spending charitable and donated monies, to hesitate before embarking on a new one million pound battle in front of a judge-led tribunal. But no, the fighting dons and their lawyers are planning to launch a new fight in their attempt to get the deem dismissed for his, quote, immoral, scandalous or disgraceful, unquote, conduct over Hairgate. 
it does not seem to worry the clique responsible that attempts to prosecute this non-event have already failed in front of three investigations and a High Court judge. As for the present governance of the college, who can possibly believe it is working satisfactorily? Recriminations about the misjudgments and expenditure of the last four years are now beginning to divide the House. The atmosphere in the senior common room is poisonous, so much so that Nigel Biggar's CBE, arguably the House's most admired Regis Professor, will not go there, because even he has found it necessary to file a complaint to the Charity Commission of deception, manipulation and corporate bullying. Meanwhile, the dinosaur faction among the Dons self-interested delays the much-needed and much-promised governance review. In support of this, quote, Turkey should not vote for Christmas, unquote, policy, the censors are promoting the view in the latest college newspaper that it is impossible to start such a review until after the Employment Tribunal has reached its decision in 2023. Why? Who believes this spurious argument? The whole saga is no longer about one man's employment. That is a convenient device to cover up a determination to preserve a flawed and arrogant regime that has laid low what should be Oxford's foremost college. The dean became a threat to this by asking for modest reforms, such as job descriptions for the censors or senior dons, and better safeguarding procedures. Professor Hine, indeed, emailed his friends in October 2017, say that the dean must be got rid of because of his drive for proper job descriptions, transparency and accountability was, quote, making everyone else miserable, unquote. The stakes at Christchurch have foolishly been allowed to grow huge. Yet maybe this misery could be brought to an end by the Charity Commission. In an unexpected intervention, it wrote on August 31st to every member of the governing body to say, quote, We continue to see the dispute as damaging to the reputation of the charity and affecting its ability to govern itself. We continue to be concerned about the toll that the dispute is placing on all involved, and we are now considering whether it is appropriate to use our regulatory powers, unquote. Well, glory, glory, hallelujah. This missive and the searching questions it asks must be spoiling many a Don's breakfast around Tom Quad as Michaelmas term begins. Until now, the ever-changing script of Carry On Christchurch has lurched between comedy and cruelty, between darkness and light. Should we all just laugh about it? Citing lines from the college's most famous author, Lewis Carroll, 
on the white queen's view than in Wonderland, you have to believe six impossible things before breakfast. Or would it be appropriate to Shakespeare's exhortation? Quote, let's kill all the lawyers, unquote. The governing body would probably get ripped off by whichever Clouseau-esque hitmen they ended up hiring. So let us hope that the Charity Commission will have the courage and determination to clean up the now rotten state of today's Christchurch. The college has not much further it can fall, and not only in league tables. Article for the Critic on Christchurch, read by its author, Jonathan Aitken. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.